Not so long ago, I was leafing through a very modern book on Hungarian history. It was a typical 20th century book, its pages and an ending chain of facts, 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 as irrefutable, logical, and as hard as the learned pens of learned historians could make them. Turning the pages, I felt as if I were walking into a typical 20th century city, a city laid out in measured blocks, glaring with the merciless white light of knowledge. Its streets smooth, hard, concrete, facts. One could not stumble on streets like that, nor could one ever get lost. Every corner is so plainly marked with dates. My eyes fell on a paragraph. The early history of the Hungarian race is a matter of learned dispute. Their own traditions declare them to be the descendants of the horde which sent forth the Huns from Asia in the 4th century. Our present knowledge of the history and distributions of the Huns tends to disprove this theory. Well, I closed the book. And I closed my eyes. And then... I saw an old garden, the great neglected park of old Han Magyar legends where moss creeping over the shadowy paths, paths which twisted and turned, which led into hidden nooks where fantastic flowers grew around crumbling monuments of pagan gods. And I saw a little girl and her father tiptoeing along those winding paths, trailing the white stag, gazing breathlessly into the circle of birch trees where moon maidens dance on a carpet of flowers, standing awed and still before the tomb of Nimrod, mighty hunter before the Lord, and bowing their heads to the great crumbling stone altar of Hador, powerful god of Huns and Magyars. Often, a path ended abruptly where a gigantic tree had crashed to the ground, its torn branches entwined in the creeping vines of centuries. But always, the white stag appeared to show them a new path. (laughs) It was beautiful, that park of legends, and the little girl who was I had never forgotten it. And now, 30 years later, I went back again, to walk those winding paths, to listen to the scream of the eagles, to pay homage to a race of brave men, men whose faith in their own destiny had led them to a land they still call their own. I went back, but this time I walked alone, and I took a ball of golden thread with me and unwound it as I trailed the white stag of legends from the great tomb of Nimrod to the great plains between two blue rivers in the Hungarian plains. Those who want to hear the voice of pagan gods in the wind and thunder, who want to see fairies dance in the moonlight, who can believe that faith can move mountains, can follow the thread on the pages of this book. It is a fragile thread. I cannot bear the weight of facts and dates.
episode four of the Tudon Explorer podcast, a show about Hungary and the millennia-long search for the Hungarian ethnogenesis. This podcast is hosted by me, Tudon Explorer, and brought to you by the legendary producer Boss Moss. Today, we are going to be looking at some of the historical context that led to the creation of a Hungarian chronicle that is probably more influential but sadly less famous than the last one we were reviewing, the Gesta Hungarum of Anonymous. I've realized that while writing this, analyzing the literal dedication page and prologue of this document involves including so much context that it really requires an episode of its own. But I promise you, not only is the political climate of Hungary and the 1270s, the king who made things so crazy there, and the long-standing accusations of being like demonic spawn that the Hungarians had for years experienced necessary to grasp the mission of this author, it is itself a deeply illuminating story that captures the transformation of Hungarian society and sets the search for Hungarian origins off into some astonishing directions. So, in the seventh grade, I went on my American School Library's search engine and looked for any books with the keywords Hungary or Attila or Huns. I, like the stereotypical nerdy middle school boy that I was, was super interested in mythology and wars and anything resembling like the fantasy genre. I had fallen in love with but finished The Lord of the Rings, and I read a few of the Harry Potter books but kind of soured on them after I got glasses and those combined with my black hair inspired all my classmates to call me Harry Potter. Obviously, there was an abundance of fiction and nonfiction inspired by or about the typical mythological pantheons popular in the American imaginary. The Greek gods, of course, but also Norse myths, Beowulf, and British legends, some Japanese stuff maybe. But my family was Hungarian, and I didn't quite know where to place that nation in the context of all that stuff. I also was fascinated by Attila the Hun, and that honestly was my entry into learning about Roman history, which of course I, as well as your boyfriend, think about daily. Obviously, Attila the Hun was this major figure in Roman history, maybe the only barbarian enemy of the empire who the average person totally uninterested in history could name. You don't exactly see Alaric, king of the Visigoths, in pop culture that much. But he was also our guy, Hungarian's guy, and I could always impress my friends by telling them Attila was a family name. I always told them, well, he's basically like the founder of our country. Still, I didn't quite know why he was us, so I would definitely search Attila, Hun, Hungarian in my library search engine and check out whatever books that I could. Some were actual history books. I remember one about great military leaders or something, and I checked it out for Attila, but I recall I also learned about and was fascinated by Tamerlane, too. But one fiction book, however, changed my life. I didn't know it at the time, but now a few hundred TikTok videos about Hungarian Turinism and several episodes into this podcast later, I think I can definitively make that claim. This book was titled The White Stag by Kate Shedady, and that intro that you just heard was Shedady's foreword. Kate Shedady considered herself much more of an illustrator than an author, and it really shows. The White Stag has a vibrant and beautiful cover with a triumphant-looking deer, entirely white, galloping up on a mountain, kind of into the sun. Behind it, almost drawn to give the deer a pair of wings, was a flaming red eagle with a sword in its talons. And 
most editions will feature a sticker on the cover showing that it was a Newbery Medal winner in 1938, which is said by a lot of people to be one of the most prestigious awards granted to American children's books. There's a lot that's really crazy about that, and from what I can tell, most Hungarians don't even know that one of the most popular and critically acclaimed books in the United States was once about Hungarian mythology. This book, full of harsh but beautiful modernist illustrations of muscle-strapped pagans in stark black and white, told the story of a pagan people whose two princes follow a miraculous white stag into a promised land. These pagans receive various totemistic prophecies, and eventually they split up into two peoples, the Huns and the Magyars, both cousins and both destined to settle in Pannonia, but one being more warlike and another being more cautious. I was obsessed with this book. If I recall correctly, I even made the first few internet passwords I ever had something that had to do with the white stag. After hearing about some of the connections between the Huns and the Hungarians from my family, this story finally explained to me, in terms I really appreciated, what some of those ancestors had to do with the infamous conquerors of Attila, and it brought a totemistic fantasy world of nomads, prophecies, visions, and of course bloodshed to life in a way that I had never even imagined. But it wasn't until much, much later that I could begin to grasp what I read in the foreword of this popular and well-received book, written beneath an illustration of a horse rider turned backwards, pulling a bowstring and aiming at something behind him. Of course, when I was a child, I had no idea of the kind of historiographical and linguistic stance that Shedity was taking, especially in that prologue, rejecting, at least aesthetically, the agreed-upon history of the Hungarian people in favor of her family's myths in the creeping garden of her childhood. I really hope it's not lost on you how utterly bizarre it is that this book, highly popular in its time and critically acclaimed in the United States of America, is not only about Hungarian mythology, but deliberately asserts a perspective that I could now probably describe as Turinist or at least adjacent to Turinism. But the story that Shedetti writes of the white stag is a pretty good retelling, at least for a 12-year-old, of one of the most famous origin narratives of the Hungarian people, the myth of the miraculous stag, or the Chodasarvash. It did not, however, first appear in the mythical writings of Anonymous, but of the unfortunately more underrated Hungarian chronicle from the 13th century of Shimon Kezai. Sometimes the true goats are overlooked because even though they were the best to ever do it, they weren't the first, and I really think this is the case with Kezai. Anonymous takes the historical prize for writing the first, and as we'll see, it had a great impact on Hungarian storytelling and pseudo-history with his associations of the Scythians, the Huns of Attila, and Gog of Magog. He then riffed on Hungarian history, establishing that blood oath in a manner that interestingly reflected the transformations in Hungarian politics during his own time. But he also traced the conquest of the Hungarian basin in ways that seemed exciting, though often erroneous, when he attributed various kingdoms or places or battles to things that had no other record of existing. 
a writer who was quite similar to Anonymous, but missed him by just a couple generations, was Shimon Kezai. And yes, we do have his name. Anonymous, I think, being ultimately more mysterious with that badass cloak as well, makes Kezai less of a compelling character. But in my opinion, Kezai's actual writing and lore is more interesting and has a stronger hint of fantasy and mythology about it. And I've met people who are generally well-versed in Hungarian history who confuse those two books even still, which share very similar titles and are both usually called the Gesta Hungarum. But whereas in Anonymous's Gesta Hungarum, he refers to the Huns, Shimon Kezai actually grants his chronicle the full name Gesta Hunum et Hungarum, or Deeds of the Huns and the Hungarians. So eventually, for like the sake of a study guide, I might take a step back and just give you a holistic history of the Arpad dynasty, Hungary's first dynasty, and everything that I find notable about any of its 23 monarchs. But right now, let me just briefly recap the distance between Bela III, who Anonymous served as the notary of, and Laszlo IV, in whose court Kezai served. I also want to tell you about Laszlo IV, also called Laszlo the Kumin or Kun Laszlo in Hungarian, because he might simply be one of my favorite Hungarian monarchs. In the last episode, we talked about how Bela III, who died during Anonymous's time, somewhere probably before or as Anonymous began writing his Gesta. Like we said last time, Bela III's sons, Imre and Andras, competed violently for the throne and waged wars against each other. But in Imre's last years, they made amends, and Imre made his three- or four-year-old son, Laszlo III, as his successor, entrusting his brother and former rival Andras as the child's guardian. After Imre's death, everyone knew kind of what was coming, and even Pope Innocent III wrote to Andras demanding that he respect the interests of this new king and the child of the brother that he spent his whole life trying to overthrow. This went exactly as you would expect it to, with the young Laszlo and his mother fleeing to Vienna, and Andras seizing his inheritance and threatening to invade Austria. After a six-month and five-day reign, this little boy king died, and even though this is before Kezai's time, it's important to repeat. The child king had been the rightful king of Hungary, but Simon Kezai and some other later chroniclers would disregard his rule entirely. We can tell this because Kezai, whose patron is Laszlo IV, the next Laszlo, calls him Laszlo III, ignoring the infant Laszlo's rule entirely. But anyway, after claiming the throne, Andras's rule was extraordinarily tumultuous and led to the political and class changes that may have inspired the creation of the Hungarian blood oath that we've been analyzing. After over a dozen wars to seize principalities of the Kievan Rus, the failure of the Fifth Crusade, appointments of Jews and Muslims to the tax collector positions that proved very unpopular with the Holy See, and a grants policy that granted serious estate giveaways to those loyal to the king, the lower nobility rose up, and Andras was forced to pass the Hungarian Magna Carta, an agreement called the Golden Bull of 1222. Andras's first wife, Gertrude, was even murdered by the nobility for alleged German favoritism. It's inspired a lot of books and operas, but even still, they had two sons named Bela IV and Kalman. Those two sons also ceaselessly accused the son of their father and his third wife, Beatrice, as being illegitimate. The son was called Istvan the Posthumous, and he was born after his father's death. 
But his half-brother, Bela, Bela IV, would oversee the devastation of the country during the first Mongol invasions. There's a lot more to say about this period later. And then he would rebuild it in a much more fortified manner, earning him the title of Hungary's second founder for how much he had to reconstruct basically from scratch. He built the foundation of Buda Castle, which still stands today, moved the population of Pest Village to Buda, turning it into a very important trade center. Bela IV also erected 20 new towns, many churches, markets, and other hubs of commerce. There was a massive demographic transformation happening in Hungary during this time as well. Historically, it was believed that only 20% of the Hungarian population, either tucked into forests or hidden in marshes, had survived the Mongol attacks. Later sources, however, claimed that 50% or so survived, and newer research has indicated that while devastating, most of the population likely withstood the Mongol invasions. But regardless, a new injection of the population was needed, and huge incentives in land, money, and legal exemptions were given to immigrants into Hungary from many different localities, from German areas to Slavic ones to even more nomadic and Turkic lands to the east. Bela IV's era of reconstruction could be thought of as a golden or maybe silver era of Hungarian Europeanization, as he also structured the Hungarian military and classes to be much more in line with the other European feudal states. Bela IV would have a son named Istvan V. Now, remember when I told you that the Mongols began to invade nomadic peoples to their west, and the people the Mongols overtook then tried to move westward even still as a kind of domino effect. Two of those people were, of course, the Turkic Cumans and the East Iranian Yas people. At first, there were wars between the Hungarians and those newcomers, primarily the Cumans, and then they formed an alliance to defend against the Mongols. The drama and tragedy behind the story of Khan Koten and Bela IV's relationship is something I'm going to look at more deeply in an episode focusing just on the Mongol invasions. But eventually, some land was granted to those Kumans and Yas in Hungary, where their descendants still celebrate their culture today after sort of a late mid-century Kuman revival. What's more, Kumans eventually held a role in Hungarian society as a population loyal primarily to the king. In a post-Golden Bull era, they formed a kind of counterweight to the increasingly powerful nobility. I think this is a dialectic, but I'm not quite sure. Anyway, Istvan V eventually married a Cumin, Elizabeth the Cumin, the daughter of a Cumin chieftain. Elizabeth the Cumin's family followed a shamanist religion and spoke a Turkic language, living a semi-pastoralist or what we would likely call nomadic lifestyle just one generation prior. Hungarians were several centuries removed from their Eurasian nomadic steppe roots and quite Europeanized at this point, but not the Cumins. The son that Hungarian King Istvan V and Elizabeth the Cumin gave birth to was this absolute chad of Hungarian history, Laszlo IV, the Cumin King of Hungary. So I love Kun Laszlo. I think he's epic and funny. It's his fault that I have to devote an entire episode to just the dedication page of this document I want to analyze more deeply. But despite my fondness or the humor that I find in him, I certainly agree with some historians that say his chaotic reign was the beginning of the end of the Arpad dynasty. When Kun Laszlo was born, his chaplain is actually believed to have been Shimon Kezai himself. And man, was Kun Laszlo fucking cool. 
Kun Lhaslo was said to have looked much more like a Central Asian Kumin than any Hungarian. But it's not just that. Kun Lhaslo pissed basically everybody off because he liked to wear his hair in the Kumin fashion and dress as a Kumin. He apparently spent so much more time around his Kumin girlfriends than his Christian wife. This infuriated many sectors of Hungarian society, especially the church, and during later Mongol invasions, he was accused of inviting them into the country. All this hate inspired some clergymen to report, whether they were rumors or true, that Kun Laszlo would often openly have sex with his favorite Kumin mistress in public. This mistress was named Aidua, by the way, and the Archbishop of Estergom described her as a poisonous viper. And even though the Hungarians had agreed to give the Kumin settlement in Hungary if they converted to Catholicism, a visiting bishop was shocked to find most of the Kumins in Hungary were still pagan. This was after several decades of writing from European clergy describing the Hungarians as an excellent example of a people's adaptation to Christianity, too. Visiting Bishop Philip of Fermo held a ceremony with the Kumin chieftains, making them promise to abandon their traditions, no longer live in tents, and settle into houses of stone. The Kumins did not do this, however, and Laszlo didn't really make them do it. In fact, he most probably enabled them given his unrelenting affinity for his Kumin kin. Kumin Laszlo then demanded that the Kumins kidnap and imprison Bishop Philip of Fermo, and in retaliation, the Transylvanian voivode, Finta Abba, kidnapped Laszlo. Finally succumbing to the pressure, Laszlo swore a new oath to finally enforce integrationist laws against the Kumins, which made a significant chunk of the Kumins leave the country. But there has never been anyone who has been more about their Kumin shit than Laszlo the Kumin. He chased after these fleeing Kumins all the way to Serbia to plead for them to return, and when they didn't, Kun Laszlo launched a campaign against the Transylvanian Voivode that turned him in, and Bishop Philip left the country. This bishop, by the way, trying to take the man out of the yurt but failing to take the yurt out of the man, was so fed up by Laszlo the Kumin that he swore to never come back to Hungary, not even for the sake of the Holy Father. The embittered Kumins, who Laszlo failed to convince, then invaded southern Hungary, where they engaged in a final conflict with Laszlo the Kumin himself, called the Battle of Lake Hod, and Laszlo came out on top. In his last decades, Laszlo left his wife Isabella, imprisoned her, transferred all her money to his mistress, then he returned to tradition and stayed among those Kumins who had remained in Hungary, the only place he ever really wanted to be. Laszlo was even excommunicated and then allegedly swore that beginning with the Archbishop of Estergom, who had freed his imprisoned Christian wife, he would take vengeance on the clergy, saying he would exterminate them all, going as far as Rome using the aid of Turkic Cuman swords. King Laszlo the Cuman was kidnapped yet again and silenced for Cuman truth by that very archbishop, and he was forced to swear an oath that he would live in accordance with Christian morals. I hope you understand Laszlo the Cuman enough by now to know that this obviously did not work. As soon as he was released, he immediately broke that oath, abducted his sister, who was a nun, and then forced her into a marriage with a Czech 
noble. Now, that Archbishop of Estergom, Kun Laszlo's most final clerical enemy, did hate him, so we have to take this with a grain of salt because he's the source of this report, but it's alleged that Laszlo claimed that even if he had 15 sisters who were all in monasteries, that he would kidnap them all and marry every one of them off to ensure his support among all realms of society. Despite having very few allies in the clergy or among the nobility and getting kidnapped like a zillion times, Laszlo still successfully defended the country against another Mongol invasion. It was a lot more resilient in his time thanks to the recovery efforts of his grandfather, Bela IV. But even still, by the end of Laszlo's reign, the country's central government had completely fallen apart. The nobles, who had more independent rule than they had prior to the gold bull or a lot of this destruction, did a good enough job managing their localities, but because of the lack of a central government, quite a few nobles embarked on failed land grabs against their neighbors, pretty much on a whim. One of Laszlo's last bold moves was the appointment of a Cumin Muslim to the position of Palatine, the highest ranking office in the country. Though this Cumin Muslim had converted to Roman Catholicism literally just before the appointment, this infuriated the Pope, and it was rumored that there was a crusade being planned against Laszlo's Hungary. But here's the saddest fucking fact about Laszlo the Cumin, a guy who has loved Cumins and being Cumin more than maybe anyone ever has. Before any crusade against Hungary actually got started, an inter-Cumin conflict resulted in Laszlo's assassination at the hands of three Cumins. Cumins, who Laszlo did every single thing to please. All he ever wanted to be was a Cumin. He gave everything for the Cumins, and he was killed by fucking Cumins. He was Laszlo the Cumin, for Christ's sake. Everybody called him Cumin. Of course, these assassins were brutally murdered by a faction of the Cumin still loyal to Laszlo, but I just can't believe, and I'm heartbroken, that of all the people who hated Laszlo, the literal Cumin, it was Cumins who did him in. Fake fucking friends, man. So anyway, this was the political context under which Shimon Kezai wrote his Gesta Hunum et Hungarum, who, as I mentioned, dedicates his chronicle to, quote, the most invincible and powerful Lord Ladislaus III, actually the fourth, most glorious king of Hungary, Master Shimon of Keza, his faithful cleric, may he approach him whose beauty the sun and moon marvel at. Hungarian historian Jeno Suc provides some interesting analysis and observations about Kezai's gesta. So, first and foremost, it is likely that this gesta was for an Italian audience. This is probably not surprising given how many Italian clergy wound up in Hungary screaming at Laszlo the Cumin to be less Cumin. It's argued, then, that this work was commissioned for propagandistic purposes, and copies may have reached the peninsula very soon after it was written. 
Kesai's Gesta is written like Anonymous's in Latin, but while Anonymous's Latin is either of the Parisian or Orleans style, Kesai's writing indicates he was well-versed in Italian and familiar with Italy, peppering Italicisms all throughout the text. Such writes that Shimon is eager to present his king, Laszlo IV, as a Christian ruler of Hungary, of a stature only comparable to Attila among the pagans. In this, Kezai's Gesta serves many of the same purposes of Anonymous's, demonstrating Hungary as having always been a lawful polity, which our previous description of Kun Laszlo's escapades do not really indicate at the time, and demonstrating even the Hunnish predecessors lived and were ruled by Romano More, where the workings of government as well as the relations between free and servile elements were based on customary and statute law. It is argued that a special chapter on immigrants was to underscore that Hungarians give freedom and chances for advancement via laws, and it was also reflecting the massive wave of migration that incentivized so many people to repopulate Hungary after the Mongol invasions. Such claims that with this immigration section, Shimon implies, even if he doesn't outright say, that even the Cumans will one day find their place in the Christian Hungarian society, and that a specific commemoration of the victory over those rebellious Cumans at Lake Hod in the text seems to reinforce that message. Much like Anonymous, who stated he didn't want to rely on minstrels or folk tales or unreliable sources, but almost certainly did, there has been much debate over the sources that Shimon Kezai referenced. Kezai utilized other older texts, likely pulling from one other work about the post-1000-year events of Hungarian history that may predate Anonymous but has since been lost. But it's easy to tell what is directly Shimon's because of those Italianisms in his Latin that he uses, and when he's directly pulling from other Latin texts, they don't always include those. Kezai used aspects of Anonymous's Gesta and other chronicles, but George Giorfi argues his version with references to Roman ruins, different local legends, and literary references to the Attila tradition and German poetry are straight from Kezai. Such writes, it was indeed the most individual and original redaction of the Hungarian Attila the Hun tradition of his age and may claim, precisely because of its extensive use of local lore and etymologies, a unique place in medieval European literature. Modern readers, but medieval ones before them as well, have read Shimon mainly for his Hunnish story and, of course, for the political theory expressed in the work. But among the people who have studied Kezai's Gesta, it's not so easy to make sense of Shimon's narrative due to the conscious or unconscious ambiguity of the author and the mixing of classical and biblical vocabulary. Of course, one objective of Kezai's that makes this text particularly difficult is the goal implied in his very title, that this is a history of the Huns and the Hungarians, and he goes to great length to bring those connections to life. 
It should be pointed out that while in the Geste Hungarum of Anonymous and Kezai, the connection to the Huns is underscored in such a way that has never left the Hungarian imaginary, it was actually outside non-Hungarians who first made this connection. Certainly, the invading pagan Magyars were by no means considered part of the Orbis Christianus prior to their conversion to Christianity. In fact, it may have not been known to Shimon Kezai that the first author to make the connection between the Hungarians and the Huns was Heriger of Lobs, who was appointed as the bishop of the Benedictine Lobs Abbey in Belgium, which the raiding Magyars had burned down several decades prior. But even when Bishop Otto of Friesling visited as late as the mid-12th century, he spoke of thoroughly barbarian characteristics that he had encountered in Hungary. Friesling described the country as opulent, but not particularly civilized. And most insultingly, he described the people that he encountered as ugly, small, and, quote, human monsters. It has been argued, however, that he may have actually not met that many Hungarians, but rather some Pechenegs in the country, early steppe peoples who in a much smaller population had moved to Hungary before the Cumans had. At this time, it was written that indeed, in Hungary, they had enjoyed enough to eat and common freedoms fairly widely, but that their dwellings were shabby and halfway in the ground with reeds or thatched roofs. So while the Hungarians were believed to be either the Huns or the Onogur tribes, the early project of Europeanization and Christianization wouldn't have tolerated any deliberate attempts on the part of the early Hungarian rulers to highlight their connections with the Huns. But a massive shift occurred in the 13th century, and not just in Hungary, although Anonymous's early writing helps illustrate until then, many even Christian peoples would have still been considered barbarians, according to writers from, say, Italy or France, including many Normans, Poles, and yes, Hungarians, despite their shared Christian faith. But historians like Such have noted that rhetorically there was a rapid transformation shift in attitude when new peoples receive their due place in the biblically derived genealogies of peoples and languages. The writing of a Dominican monk at the Synod of Lyons reviewed the former and present enemies of Christendom and concluded positively that the previous so-called barbarians, such as the Poles and the Hungarians, had been almost entirely assimilated, except for the Tatars, or Turkic peoples, to Hungary's east, that is. This is during that same time where Hungarians were upheld as effective models of assimilation that peoples like the Cumans could strive to be more like. And it is the combination of the new liberty that peoples had to propagate their pagan roots, but also the propaganda needed to please a Christian-Italian audience in light of Kuhn Laszlo's many, many heresies that Kezai writes. I agree with Jena Such when he says that Kezai's Gesta does not derive value from an inherent literary value, as its style is quite dry and monotonous, nor from claims of historical accuracy, but rather from the paradoxical fact that it is an ingenious historical fiction from start to finish. There is a famous myth among the French originating from the 16th century that their society sprang from ancient Troy as the descendants 
descendants of those who fled the destruction of that city. The Hungarian connection to the Huns is often compared to this. But unlike the French myth, the Hungarian one is quite a bit older, and it is argued by some credible historians that at least some aspects of the legend linking the two people and that origin saga preserve trace memories of Onagur, Alan, Khazar, Ties, and more, though not the deliberate connection with the Huns. And in my opinion, this is one of the most difficult things to parse out, even when looking at contemporary and well-respected Hungarian anthropology. Anonymous, Such writes, recognized political utility of Hungarian identification with the Huns, and presented, with some obvious contradictions, Attila as the Arpad ancestor. But even around 1250, Bela IV's court still refused to officially countenance any association with Attila. Some chroniclers writing adventurous bedtime stories might have seen such a project as useful, definitely not when trying to prove to the Pope what a good and normal Christian you were. For the actual Hungarian nobility, folks were still fairly tepid about embracing any kind of Scythian, Hunnic, Tatar step origin. Yet only about three decades later, Laszlo's clergy promoted the Hunnish origin theory with abandon. But unlike many of those making vague associations with the Huns, Kezai was most likely extremely well-read, pulling from not only Jordan's Getica and Godfrey of Viterbo's Pantheon, but also more, Historia Attilae, a lost history of the city of Venice, some German writings, all with many references to Huns. And in order to appropriately fill out the histories of the two peoples and blur the lines of who did what, Kezai transfers to the Huns many events that the Hungarians actually did in old Magyar chronicles. So when it comes to the Hun-Hungarian continuity, Shimon Kezai hits the ground running, right? Naming his text as a history of both peoples, Hunum et Hungarum. He goes beyond what Anonymous does, kind of roping them in, more so as like a footnote. At the very beginning, he claims to dispute arguments made about the Huns as though they were a direct slander of the Hungarian people. No, oh, what a slander it was. Almost immediately in his history, Kezai shames the writer Orosius as putting forward bad examples when writing about the Huns, because Kezai claims that he wanted to please the Emperor Otto the Great. Kezai writes, I have not imitated the example of Orosius, for he concocted many apocryphal stories in his pages out of partiality toward the Emperor Otto, on whom the Hungarians had inflicted numerous conflicts in their various battles, and claimed that Hungarians were begotten of demonic incubi. Already, there's a lot of weirdness and inconsistency in the one and a half sentences of Kezai's mission statement that we have to unpack. Three points about the errors or anachronisms in this one sentence. One, as you can predict, it was not in fact the Hungarians who were being referred to and cited in the source as demonic incubi. It was the Huns of Attila about 600 years prior. Not that this makes a difference to Kezai, who wants to see them as the same people. Two, 
Orosius was a Roman historian writing in the early 400s, and while historians do believe that Shimon Kezai had used Orosius's Historia Contra Paganos elsewhere in his Gesta, the implication that Huns are demonic incubi actually most likely comes from a different author's text from an Eastern Roman bureaucrat named Jordanes in his History of the Goths called Getica, written nearly a century later. For some reason, Kezai very likely had read both of these texts, but he mixes them up. Specifically, Jordanes writes, they are called incubi or inui from their indiscriminate intercourse with animals. Often they behave shamelessly with women and copulate with them too. It's most likely that Shimon Kezai is attributing to Orosius what Jordanes actually accuses the Huns of doing. And point three is, whether Kezai is citing Jordanes or Orosius, it is impossible that either of them would have slandered the Huns out of a partiality for Emperor Otto, because Emperor Otto, otherwise known as Otto the Great, lived more than 300 years after any of these writers. Otto the Great, we should note, is a very important figure in Hungarian history because when the Hungarians arrived in the area where Hungary is today from an area in modern southern Ukraine called Etelkos, they, of course, didn't just stop in the basin. They waged really devastating raids all across Europe as far as the Netherlands, southern Italy, and Spain. The historical factors behind their movement are complex, but it's likely that they were being pushed by attacks of the Turkic Pechenegh peoples to their east, and they had some experience running raids on various peoples past the Carpathians to their west. The Byzantine Empire, under Leo the Philosopher, even paid them to attack the Bulgars in just a year or two prior to their conquest of Pannonia, greasing the gears for their later big migration. We've talked a bit about how devastating these raids on the former Carolingian Empire were, and looked at some of the cannibalistic and death cult rumors that were spread, and because they were their own scourge of God, the first rumors that they were like the Huns of Attila came from kind of around this time. They had a massive winning streak between 800 and 955. There was even a very common saying during that time that goes, Asagitus Hungarorum libera nos domine, or Lord save us from the arrows of the Hungarians. This time period is called in Hungarian Kalandozashok, loosely translated to the adventures, but in German it's called Ungareinfele, or the Hungarian invasions. But the guy who gets the credit for putting an end to these invasions is Otto I, also known as Otto the Great, one of the most famous Holy Roman emperors and a pivotal figure in German history and European history as a whole. After the defeat against Otto at the Battle of Lechfield, the Magyars would cool their jets in Hungary and begin this long process of Europeanization, though for the next couple decades some Hungarian raids would still continue against the Eastern Roman Empire. Otto the Great was a pretty big deal, but he was not such an important ruler that writers from centuries prior to his birth were accusing the Huns of being demons or the children of an incubus in order to suck up to him. This is literally impossible. Own anachronisms and misattributions, Kezai wants to dispel this demonic origin myth, and he uses biblical logic to do so. 
Kezai writes, When Philemer, son of Alaric the Great, king of the Goths, was attacking the borders of Scythia, he took away in his army numerous women known in their own language as Baltrame. These women were a great menace to the soldiers as they drew large numbers of them from their military duties with their blandishments. So for this reason, the story goes, the king's council expelled them from the company of the army. Thereupon, they wandered the wilderness and finally settled on the shores of the Metwai marches. This is a tell, by the way, that Kezai is pulling from some of Anonymous's writings, as Anonymous too calls the land around the Azov Sea as such. Kezai continues, they remained there for a long time, deprived of marital consolation, but then, according to Erosius, demonic incubi are said to have come to them and had intercourse with them, and he maintains it was from this congress that the Hungarians sprang. However, that this assertion may be seen to be patently false is proven, in the first place, by the text of the Gospels, which say, A spirit has not flesh and bones, and that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. One must dismiss it as against nature and quite contrary to the truth when he maintains that spirits can beget when they are not supplied with the natural organs which could provide the procreative ability to function capable of creating the true form of an embryo. From these considerations, it is obvious that like other peoples of the world, the Hungarians owe their origin to man and woman. There is another respect, too, in which he strays in no little way from the bonds of the truth, in that he seems to recall only battles lost by the Hungarians, while passing over in silence those with outcomes favorable to them. This entire opening passage is so nuts to me. It's extremely hardcore that in one of the first and most important medieval histories of the Hungarians, so much energy is spent saying, no, the Hungarians are not half demon, half man, because we obviously know that you need organs of the flesh to create a human embryo, dummy. What's more, given all that has already proven factually inaccurate or overt bias in Kezai's own writing literally in this intro, it's really funny to me that he then says, This is an unmistakable sign of the overt bias in his writing. As I am concerned to reproduce the truth, I will include both the favorable and the unfavorable ones. I will also write about the origin of the aforementioned nation, where they lived, how many many realms they occupied, and how many times they moved to new lands. But ever with his help and grace, who is craftsman God, creator as well as redeemer of all things which have their being under the lunar circle and beyond, and enjoy life since creation, to whom be honor and glory forever and ever eternally. And thus begins the deeds of the Huns.
So thanks for listening to episode four of season one of the Turan Explorer podcast. I know we literally just looked at Shimon Kezai's introduction to this document, but compared to the political situation Anonymous is writing during, Kezai's is far more drastic, in some ways at least. Laszlo the Kumin had turned Hungary into a Turkic paradise, sort of, and these yurt-dwelling Turks wandered the country and new populations were settling across newly erected stone villages. It's really an astonishing period to even imagine living in. What's more, Hungary was just one failed political assassination away from backtracking on centuries of Christianization and getting a crusade waged against it. All of this leads to a climate where chroniclers are loudly protesting that Hungarians are not demons. That is ridiculous. Don't you know anything about what the Bible says about flesh and spirits? It was a public relations crisis, but even still, like many other European localities, Hungarians were still turning to their pagan origins to make sense of their place on the great Eurasian supercontinent when writing their own histories. Next episode, we will actually dive into the meat of the text that it's most widely known for, the chronicle of those two legendary peoples and brother princes that's fascinated me since middle school, not directly descendant from one another, but rather spiritually descended from the same mystical crop. We'll look at yet another biblical shoehorning into Hungarian history, that of Nimrod, possibly related to a pre-Hungarian king in the Carpathians, possibly related to a Hungarian totem or more. And I hope we'll see the richly illustrated fantasy world I had envisioned as a child when I, for the first time, learned that the Hungarians had their own mythology and pantheon, unlike anything I'd ever heard about. I'm really looking forward to chasing after it with you in Turan.